Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by Dr. Paul Letta, the author of Ronald Reagan and His Quest to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. Dr. Leto served in the George W. Bush administration, first from 2006 to 2007 at the State Department, and then from 2007 to 2009 on the National Security Council as the Senior Director for Strategic Planning. He now has a distinguished legal career. Roger and Paul discuss his book about President Reagan's nuclear abolitionism, as well as the process different presidential administrations undertook to create the U.S. national security strategy. They also grade the Trump administration's national security strategy. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Paul Leto, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Roger. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you in person. It's a sign of the times. We are, we are back, or on our way back, I should say, here at the Mike Kerr Media Room in the offices of the Ronald Reagan Institute. Um, a lot to discuss today. Uh, you're probably well known in this town for serving in the Bush administration on the National Security Council staff, uh, very successful lawyer afterwards. But in the world of Reagan, you're known because you wrote this book at a crazy young age. We'll get into that in just a minute. But first, Paul, tell everybody what happened in your childhood that resulted in you becoming an author, a nasty staffer, strategist, successful lawyer. Uh, what are the ingredients that we get someone like you? Uh, well, first of all, Roger, that's all that is nice of you to say. And I'm uh, delighted to be here at the Reagan Institute uh, with friends and both Ronald Reagan and the Reagan Library and Foundation have been a big part of my life, uh, going back to my uh, early 20s, which I'm sure we'll get into. Well, um, tell me more. What, what, what happened in the 20s that they became a big part of your life? So in college, I went to a college uh, that encouraged and supported independent work and writing. Tell us the college. Princeton. Oh, I've heard of that one. Which has, uh, as a junior, we wrote. Uh, two independent papers, and then as a senior, one writes a thesis. Okay. Uh, and everyone who went through Princeton, including some of the people we'll talk about, like George Ken and George Schultz, all you know, spent a uh, decent amount of time and effort on their senior theses. When I was there in the 1990s, it struck me that having grown up in Washington uh, and had my formative childhood years uh, during the era in which Reagan was president, that he was enormously successful in what he set out to accomplish, both in foreign and domestic policy. And it struck me that he was understudied by the academic world and uh, probably underappreciated by the academic world. Now, now this is all, you were struck by all this while um, in Princeton University. This junior in college. Yeah, yeah. History well, major. Well, yeah. So what's wrong with you? Why, why are you in Princeton University and having these heretical thoughts, like right. Reagan was successful, heretical thought number one, 
And heretical thought number two, he's understudied by the academy. Are you the one that got away from the clutches of Princeton University? Yeah, well, actually, Princeton has been, had a tradition of being delightfully heterodox on these issues. Um, I grew up here in Washington, and Reagan at the time um, was seen as an excellent politician and, of course, a great communicator, right? But not necessarily a man of ideas and something of a cipher for his advisors. And I grew up in a family that, that celebrated and studied history. And we talked about ideas, thought about ideas. My father had been in government in the early 1970s. The now Judge Leto. Now Judge Leto, right. But it, it always struck me uh, that when I was going through school and then in my first years in college, that those attitudes had stuck in the academic world toward Reagan even though, as I say, he seemed to be hugely successful in terms of accomplishing what he set out. And it struck me that he was either the most fortunate leader in American history, or there was more to the story. So you didn't believe what was it Clark Clifford said about Reagan, um, mm -hmm. the amicable dunce. This was right, the amiable dunce. No, I did, there we go. It struck me as possible, but impossible. Right. Okay. So you have this epiphany, or perhaps not epiphany, but you're kind of grounded this and thinking about it. And then you set off to write a book. How does that happen? Yeah. So I started off, uh, I come from an Anglophilic family. Anglophilic family. So does that mean you like England? England and, okay. the, and the UK and its history. Okay, good. And I set out actually to do work on the Reagan-Thatcher relationship um, and to compare the two of them. And at the time, I actually thought Thatcher was in some ways the more interesting because of her, her background. Um, in the course of that work, uh, including time at the Reagan Library and the archives, it became clear that it was Reagan, actually, who, again, was understudied and who had uh, ideas that he had formed early on and that were understudied. So Princeton College, Paul Leto, Princeton University of Paul Leto, uh, summer or, or spring break, we are not going to Mexico, friends. <laughs> we're headed to Simi Valley, <laughs> California, and we're not going to get a tan. We're going to actually become pale no. in the archives of Reagan Library. Yes. Uh, that, that, yes, that's one way of putting it. And I, let me put in my, my plug here for the Reagan Library. <laughs> Go for, the, for it. Yes. For those of you who haven't been there, the first time I visited the Reagan Library was in 1998. <laughs> and it was between my junior and senior years of college. And Princeton had given me funding to go and see what I could find in the archives. But a couple points stand out. One is the library itself and the facility and everything about it are fantastic and wonderful to visit. Um, and I encourage people to do that if they haven't. Um, we'll second, put that in the notes where you go if you're interested. Carry on. <laughs> second point. For the reasons I mentioned, which is that I think most of academia had decided that uh, Reagan was not a mystery that needed solving or study. I was the only person in the archives for a number of maybe the first three or four visits I made there. Come so on. That is a true story. So, so are I you going at like like a bad time of year or like where well, academics it, are in their conferences someplace in Europe? Or is it truly reflective of, of what you're saying, which is he was just not focused on because people just wrote Reagan off? I think it's the latter. Wow. I mean, I was there in, in the summer and then over the ensuing years for a number of visits. And for a good part of that time, I was the only researcher in the archives, which is actually a good lesson for all of the, the young students. The budding scholars. Potential academics. Yes. Yeah. Find a place that's understudied. And you found like a treasure trove of stuff here. Right. I mean, this book, 
and I'll hold it up once again. It, it needs to be go back on the Amazon bestseller. So you got Random House to publish, which is just an unbelievable accomplishment for any author, let alone someone who wrote it as young as you were. Um, I mean, there's like a rich, this is full of original stuff. You just take a look at, at the bibliography. I mean, you found a lot of original material that others had to focus on. Tell us just about what kind of how you piece it together. Yep. Uh, great question. I was fortunate in a number of ways. One is a lot of the materials in the Reagan library, um, had been declassified in the release. So there were a right. lot of national security documents I was focusing on this, this national security side. Um, were available for study for those who were able and willing to go find it. So there was an opportunity there in the documentary record. Um, the other part was a number of the officials who had served Reagan um, were still alive and were willing to talk to someone right. who had done a lot of interviews. So yeah. I did a lot of interviews yeah. with officials in the Reagan yeah, security advisor, yeah. yeah, ambassadors of the Soviet Union. Right. Right. Amazing. So combining the two, in other words, doing just the hard historical spade work of spending time in the archives. And that meant a couple things. That meant looking through the historical record of his administration. It also meant looking through the record of the development of his thought before he became president through speeches and you know the other archives that are there from his pre-presidential career. A lot of the Andersons have done that you rely on. Um, and then and then uh, and then interviewing people who work with him. So it really was partly I was there because I thought there was a mystery to be solved or a, or a story to be told. And then it became clear that that was true and that others had, had missed that opportunity. So I want to talk about the main yeah, argument in this book, well, you know, for a few minutes and then we're going to go on to what I'm hoping will be a, the next book from one Paul Leto, but uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in, in a moment. You actually working with the documents and the interviews. And you know, looking at Reagan, not only the Reagan uh, in the White House, but the Reagan who emerged from the time he entered the political scene in '64 to the time uh, he was elected, and found the threat. And that was, well, under the bold here, the name of your book. He wanted to abolish nuclear weapons, and um, that was kind of underappreciated, um, mostly, I guess, my sense. And, and you write about this because. The narrative was that Reagan was this hawk, that the saber rattler who wanted to bring the world to the brink of nuclear war. There were people's administration who certainly didn't support the abolition, you know, kind of the goal to abolish nuclear weapons. Uh, you, of course, kind of capture all of that. But this is a very different take, certainly when you publish this, that I think was a popular image of Reagan and Reagan's uh, kind of hawkishness. Precisely. Did I get that right? Yep, that's right. There, there actually there are two threads that I that I tried to draw on, but and both go back actually to to ideas that he had developed in the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II. Um, one was that Reagan, from the get go uh, in 1945, uh, loathed nuclear weapons right. and the threat of nuclear war, and he was indeed. A nuclear abolitionist, and that was true from August 1945 uh, through you know his last days. Um, the second thread, which is what makes it in some ways interesting and complementary, is that Reagan had a sense, and this began in the late 1950s, that the Soviet Union um, was vulnerable economically and technologically, 
because of the nature of its system and that the nature of its system mattered and that it, it prevented, it presented a vulnerability that the United States could push on. And finding those two threads and then watching how they intersected from that period of you know, late 1950s through the end of his presidency was what made it an exciting exercise for me. And I think what made the book uh, new and, and a fresh interpretation of Reagan. One more uh, set of questions on the book, and then I, then I promise we'll move on to national security strategy, all your amazing work uh, from your time in government and outside. One of my favorite moments in trying to understand Reagan, or maybe all my favorite facets of Reagan come together, is the Strategic Defense Initiative, also known as Star Wars, arms can, arms reduction negotiations, yep. right? The idea that he's going to negotiate with Gorbachev to reduce nuclear weapons in this world. And then Reagan, the great communicator and the person who is willing to communicate with the people because he feels they will buy into his principles. And here's what I'm talking about. As you lay out in your book, he has the opportunity to get Gorbachev to agree to abolish nuclear weapons. And they do abolish. But Gorbachev says, just get rid of the Star Wars program. And Reagan essentially says, no. Everybody thinks he's crazy because not everybody understood SDI, not everybody, but many. And then he, he's getting panned. And he basically says, well, panned by the intelligentsia, the press, he's bringing us to the, you know, the brink of nuclear war. And he says, well, I'll take it to the people. And he gets up. I think from the Oval, you'll, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, and makes a speech about SDI following Reykjavik and said, listen, I will negotiate everything and anything except for two things, freedom and our future. And he really felt that the ability for the United States and in his mind, the Soviet Union to defend itself from nuclear weapons was the key to preserving freedom and preserving a future that you know he felt was a future uh, you want to preserve. Tell, you cover that speech in here, and 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 what about just give me some color on the Reagan, the politician, conveying Reagan. The, you know, this is deep policy, arms control, high-minded stuff. You agree with my character? I do, and I'll, and let me back up yeah, uh, just briefly. And Roger, what you're talking about here is the aftermath of the Reykjavik yeah. summit in 1986. And I remember it, I'm sure you do too. Um, the press, uh, academics, everyone was confused about what had happened here for the reason uh, that you mentioned at the top, which is Reagan was seen as um, a, a, a nuclear hawk yes. and so on. And all of a sudden he's negotiating um, at the very least deep reductions in nuclear weapons with Mikhail Gorbachev. And it struck everyone as, as a great turn of events for it or a sea change in Reagan's behavior. Don Reagan, his chief of staff, said he was willing to negotiate it all, right? I and mean, this was a wait. They right. did, actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and to the, in the memoranda of conversation of all of the Reagan Gorbachev summits were among the documents that had been declassified and released when I started doing my work. So young Paul Leto, NCAA Valley, so Valley finds these memoranda. Okay. 20, 20 year old me through you know, 27 year old me uh, had these documents, which were the verbatim transcripts of what Reagan and Gorbachev had said at Geneva and Reykjavik and so on. And nobody had read them or published them. And so I went back and looked at what they had actually said. And, and actually it's worth 
correcting the historical record even here. At Reykjavik, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev agreed to abolish nuclear weapons. Full stop. Full stop. And George Shultz actually weighed in and his verbatim line is, let's do it. Right. So you had agreement among these principles to do it. What they did not agree to is that Gorbachev wanted to restrain SDI or missile defense. Right. For reasons which I detail in the book. And Reagan wouldn't agree to it because he saw missile defense as a way to um, both facilitate a nuclear free world and then guarantee it. Basically, he would then share missile defense with the Soviets and everyone else to kind of protect a world without nuclear weapons. And for reasons having to do with his internal system, uh, Gorbachev. Uh, wouldn't agree to that, and so it broke up. And Reagan was very angry. Because he was super. He was very angry at Gorbachev because he felt that he had come very close to his dream of a world without nuclear weapons, and because he offered SDI to the Soviets, which also makes people's heads. Yeah. Scared. And let me let me jump in with a quick story. Yeah. And I, yeah. I had these transcripts. So again, verbatim transcripts of of what Reagan and Gorbachev had said. And at the Reykjavik transcript, uh, I would take it around to people I was interviewing. And a number of the senior officials from the Reagan administration had literally never seen them before. Huh. So they had no idea what Reagan and Gorbachev had actually agreed to or so not agreed to. Here you are, years after, not any years, but years after the Reagan administration, some of the key players did not know what transpired and never. Correct. And so hearing their reactions kind of post hoc, and I include a lot of that in the book, and why those transcripts were, were held close, uh, it's all part of the book. When you found it, were you like just like like looking left, looking right? Like, like did you realize what you just found? I I did realize, and actually, the a lot of the national security strategic planning documents that I had, I had found at the Reagan Library, same thing. They were declassified and released either before I got there or while the, while I was studying at the Reagan Library, but had not been published before. And this book contains uh, a great number of them. And I knew at the time. I mean, again, from most of this time, I was alone in the library, and I knew that I was sitting on a cold pile. One last question, because I can't stop. Um, we'll get to the, the next article and hopefully book in a moment. Given that Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist or wanted to abolish nuclear weapons, was his military buildup like sui generis? Was this like only for the moment in time where, all right, we have the Soviet Union, it's our cost imposing strategy, we're gonna bankrupt the hell out of those bastards. And therefore, you can't look at the Reagan years and say, actually, having peace and strength in an environment where you don't have that kind of challenge uh, is necessary. I mean, would, would, would a Reagan outlook always say we should have peace and strength, or was it only for that moment, one moment in time? Outstanding question. And this is where the two threads that I talked about before intersect in Reagan's mind. So on the one hand, as I've been describing, he was a visionary and, and an almost a utopian. Uh, on the other hand, he was fantastically insightful and hard-headed. And he was the, in many ways, the inheritor of the Eisenhower tradition of, of peace through strength, which actually goes back to the Roosevelt, yeah, right. long lineage. Um, but he really carried it through. And he was a believer, I think, both in peace through strength as a general principle, like Eisenhower and like Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, but with respect to the Soviet Union, Again, this goes back to thinking that was consistent in his mind from the late 1950s on. He felt that communism was, as he called it, an aberration, right? an abnormal state of affairs, that it was to enrich, basically, and empower its leaders and to leave everyone else behind. And he thought that is contrary to human nature. 
And because of it, their system was, was vulnerable and weak. And that if we had a proactive strategy in the Cold War, including and especially a defense buildup, that we could uh, pressure and take advantage of those vulnerabilities. And that thread met his nuclear abolitionism at the point where he thought if we run an arms race and he had a defense buildup across the board, which you know better than, than anyone else, then they would not be able to keep, keep up and they would know that. And they would therefore have to agree to reductions and ultimately he hoped the abolition of nuclear weapons. So a peace through strength approach tailored for that moment in time. Tailored for the moment, okay. but with general principles that apply even today. We move on, despite the fact that I don't want to, because I love this subject and this book. Um, order it on Amazon by Paul Leto, Ronald Reagan, and his quest to abolish nuclear weapons. But if you don't get there, you need to download U.S. National Security Strategy Lesson Learned by Paul Leto on the Texas National Security Review. Uh, and Paul, um, I don't know when you sleep, you uh, have successful law practice, uh, previously private practice, uh, now with the, the Chamber of Commerce, yet you managed to write the most comprehensive lengthy article I've ever seen on the national security strategy. For our listeners not familiar, in like 30 seconds, tell me what a national security strategy is, and why should anybody care about it other than those working inside a White House and a national security advisor or Secretary of State or something? Right. So 45 seconds. Go. All right. Uh, almost every president since the Truman administration in uh, his and eventually hers uh, first year or two has issued a written national security strategy, which is a comprehensive document that lays out the threats facing America and how America intends to deal with them. In the Cold War, those documents were classified um, and a lot of work went into them at the front end and they kicked off a planning process. Since the end of the Cold War, they've been uh, largely for public consumption and not classified. We can get into how that makes a difference, but that is the basic idea. So there is a, if you will, a master document that lays out uh, America's interests in the world, the threats to those interests and how America intends to respond. And the idea is, is like, this comes from the President of the United States, maybe the National Security Advisor helps facilitate it, depending on administration, they're driving it, writing it, or they're overseeing a process that results in it. But in the end, it allows the President of the United States or to say, okay, this is where I want to go. All of you, cabinet officials, sub-cabinet officials, play within these parameters. And that, that's the value, one of the propositions, one value proposition. Absolutely correct. So in I think in each case, actually, the president has always signed it or otherwise taken ownership for it. Usually it's been developed by his national security advisor, um, which is his main White House staff advisor, as opposed to the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense on national security. Um, but it applies to and effectively covers the Secretaries of State and Defense and the Treasury and so on. Now, of course, to the world, uh, and to citizens of this country, they see the Secretary of State. They'll see the Secretary of Defense. Uh, they'll see other cabinet officials. The National Security Advisor is traditionally not somebody who's front and center, but probably spends more time in the President of the United States than anyone else that I've just mentioned. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Um, and so this is the, the kind of the means that he that this National Security Advisor, he or she, can, can enforce um, that strategy and the President's priorities. Okay, this is going to come in a shock, everybody. But after reading your article, 
my takeaway is you really like what happened during the Reagan years. <laughs> and, and I'll quote you because this is an important takeaway. Perhaps no administration's national strategic planning has been as underappreciated as that of the Reagan administration, although it got off to a late start. Um, as we've been discussing, the Reagan administration was underappreciated. What did you like when you went in and studied the Reagan administration's approach and how is it distinct or kind of compete with some of the better national strategies of other administrations? Um, Reagan, again, had views that in many respects were outside of the mainstream foreign policy thought. We've talked about a number of them. And when he came in, he was determined to change the course of American policy toward the Soviet Union. And partly it was almost inevitable that President would, because he succeeded President Carter, who had struggled and had travails with respect to his Cold War policy. But part of it was Reagan came into office with these very firmly held and, and distinctive views. And his second national security advisor, uh, Bill Clark, um, and a number of others who had worked with Reagan going back to their days in Sacramento and state government, led a process that effectively took Reagan's views and set them down on paper. In these are classified documents, right? So we did not see these in the 1980s. We can only see them in retrospect. Right. Um, but that guided the administration from 1982 until the finish. And looking back through that, you really see both the distinctive influence of Reagan himself but also that his advisors essentially pursuing his interests ran a great process to make that happen. Now we think of a national advisor maybe as someone who's a former general officer, Scowcroft, a huge scholar, you know, a Kissinger, an experienced national professional, you know, Steve Hadley, yeah. Judge Clark. What were his bona fides coming in here? So Judge Clark had uh, had none of that background. Yeah, he was, he was a, Yet he was actually one of the best and most underappreciated national security advisors. And a, and a brief kind of background on on Judge Clark and why we're calling him Judge Clark. Um, Bill Clark was a fourth or fifth generation Californian, grandson son of marshals and police chiefs and so on. He was a rancher at heart. He had served in the army in counterintelligence, um, but was basically a rancher and a lawyer, and had worked with Ronald Reagan as de facto chief of staff in the early days in Sacramento. So when, he, when Reagan was governor, when Reagan was Judge governor, Clark was there along with Ed Meese. Along with Ed Meese and Mike Deaver and, and uh, uh, Cap Weinberger and a lot, lot of folks that later served in the administration. But Clark had zero ego. And he was soft-spoken and he didn't particularly care about his own advancement. He did care about the advancement of the president. And in some ways, he's underappreciated as national security advisor because he didn't write books after he left office. He, didn't, you know, he wasn't a public figure. Um, but he did know Ronald Reagan, and he did know that Reagan had very firm views on, on these issues. And so he led a process with his deputy, Bud McFarland, um, and Richard Pipes, who was a Harvard historian who came to work on the NSC staff. So you do have some Ivy League. You have some Ivy League. League. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. But, um, but they saw their job, and this is actually also in the book and then in this article, they saw their job as effectively translating Reagan's views, which were unorthodox, uh, into U.S. national security policy, and they were they were very successful at it. Let Reagan be Reagan. But you also had cabinet officials, who I think you know there was certainly disagreement. But wouldn't you say that Secretary of Defense Captain Weimer, Secretary of State Schultz, they got off to a late start, but that's before Schultz was there. 
generally understood that they were serving the one person in the executive branch who was elected by people. Correct. And they all, and it's interesting that you mentioned them, the Reagan administration, and that, for those who are familiar with Reagan and the history, um, there was a lot of, of disagreement with the administration on important points, but interestingly, they were unified behind the fact that Reagan had, had clear views um, and that in the most important ways, like the fundamental national security strategy, he ought to be able to pursue them. And how that all played out is an interesting part of the story. Yeah, either to quote here from Bud McFarland, who was the deputy national security advisor during this process, and of course became national security advisor. You know, he explains why this was successful, according to you. This is the quote: "It says we had a we had a policy written down that said I am the president and I want to challenge the Soviet Union politically, economically, and militarily." You know, it, it, it kind of helps when you got the principle behind it and invested. Yeah, that's right. And and it was a stark contrast to um, a lot of administrations before and since where there was a battle over fundamental premises or the, or the direction of policy. And this is where it's so important that Reagan came to office with these very firm views because he felt that the Soviet Union was was vulnerable economically, technologically, politically, ideologically. And also that it could change and would change if we took a proactive approach in the Cold War, which included the defense buildup uh, and included um, basically a forthright declaration of, of the principles that we stand for in the world. Let, let me ask you, just because one of the things I thought was quite interesting uh, was your treatment of the Carter yeah. Um uh, They had Brzezinski there, who was an accomplished Ivy League academic, yeah. Columbia University in this case. Yep. Not quite Princeton or Harvard, but as a Columbia Lamar, oh. I'll call it out. Here we go. Establishment weenies talking here, but it seems like they got that net assessment correct. Tell yeah. us what a net assessment is, what Huntington was doing. And then it's an example of a failed national foreign policy. So does it show the limits of a national strategy? Or no, you could say that they got this right. They got other things wrong. It's, it's Explain with the Carter years. Okay. You know, again, great. Sixty seconds. So now we're mo moving back from yeah, from the yeah, Reagan administration, yeah. and and this article again is a history of the national security strategies from yeah. effectively Truman through Trump. So it's a it's comprehensive. And Roger, I think you're rightly zeroing in on. I have a long section on Carter because I think it's illustrative of of how these processes can work for good and for ill. So. Uh, Speaking of Brzezinski, uh, indeed, was a, was a professor at, at the great Columbia University. <laughs> and uh, as National Security Advisor, um, he brought in Sam Huntington, uh, who was a professor at Harvard, who later became famous for all sorts of fashion civilizations mm -hmm. and all sorts of later books and ideas. And Brzezinski, who was uh, effectively a Cold War hawk, but serving Jimmy Carter, who, whose views were largely unformed at this time, asked Huntington, I want you to do a, a classified and in-depth study of what the strengths and weaknesses are of the Soviet Union. This is the net assessment. The net assessment. What the strengths and weaknesses are of the United States in the Cold War, and then how the two meet. In other words, what are the ways that we can play offense and use our strengths against their vulnerability? Cost-imposing strategy. Cost-imposing strategy, precisely. And Sam Huntington uh, wrote what is a brilliant and long uh, net assessment and the cabinet, uh, led by President Jimmy Carter, 
uh, reviewed it, discussed it, um, and then basically promptly ignored it when they developed their own national security strategy, which was uh, five pages, five pages, and kind of a mushy. While there's competition, there's cooperation, and so on. But but one of the tragedies of the Carter years hmm. was that if President Carter and Cyrus Vance, who was the Secretary of State, I think had more fully appreciated what Huntington and through Huntington Brzezinski were pointing out in the first year, they could have followed a more competitive strategy there from the start. And it was an example of where you had two fundamentally different yeah. approaches to, to dealing with the Soviet Union. Cyrus Vance wanted to engage, didn't quite think we could prevail. Uh, continuation in some ways of the detente of Kissinger. And Huntington, based on reading your article, has certain elements that, we'll, that we would ultimately see in the Reagan That's unquestionably true. So the, the Huntington Net Assessment, which again is it's a lengthy, but it's a, this was a top secret document at the time. So we didn't know about it at the time. But you read it now, and there are clear elements from it that would not be out of place in the Reagan administration. And I went and talked to Dr. Brzezinski when he was still alive, and we talked it through. And he acknowledged that they there were parts of the Carter administration, especially toward the tail end, that actually foreshadowed some of the policies that Reagan developed. And the problem with the Carter administration was that there were these two warring camps, the right. more kind of hawkish side in Brzezinski and Huntington, and ultimately the Secretary of Defense, Harold Brown. And then you had the more dovish Secretary of State. And the real challenge was that Carter, whether because his views weren't formed enough or just because he sided more with Secretary Vance, didn't really resolve the dispute when he wrote his own national security strategy, which again, as you know, was five pages and it was right. kind of wishy-washy and didn't really give direction. And the problem with that is if you don't identify and address these issues early on in administration, they fester. And so the Carter administration was muddled, just, muddled. was muddled and there was just rampant infighting. And eventually Brzezinski and the Huntington view won out, but it was pretty light in the game for Carter. Yeah, I mean, you, you don't see those policies realized. He's politically in trouble, and yeah, that's right. really towards the end of his administration. Yep. Um, let's move to Trump. Okay. Now I know you cover the gamut here. We can only highlight a few. Yep. Um, a lot of our uh, listeners and watchers probably are wondering. All right. Well, how does Trump administration rank? I think it should rank highly mm -hmm. um, because just like the Reagan administration and some of the others you celebrate here, I think the defining feature is they get the big things right and they stay committed to it. The Trump administration made the unequivocal switch or move to identifying China as our near-peer competitor, the greatest threat we face, and then really marshaled everything we did from an abstract standpoint, was attempted to, uh, towards that great power competition, which was China and, and, and Russia. Um, did I get that right? Um, how do you how do you grade what, what what came out in 2017 or so? I think that's basically right. We had been in for most of the administrations in the post Cold War world, um, and I I include the one that I served in, George W. Bush administration. We had not been uh, clear and tough enough in identifying China and Russia as geopolitical threats in the national security strategies, and then pursuing a competitive approach towards. Yeah, I mean, it'll be hard. So 2007 2009. I mean, we are engulfed in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yep. Yep. I, I got to imagine as a senior director, if you were coming and say, you know what, uh, W, I know you're really focused on this little war here in Iraq and Afghanistan, but if you pick your head up, we really need to focus on China. I mean, you you would have been laughed out of the room and booted out of the way. I, well, I actually, I, I, I 
will respectfully disagree and actually Whoa, be okay. for the reason that when, um, so from 2007 to 2009, I was the senior director for strategic planning. So the official, the, the then national security advisor, Steve Hadley, uh, would work with and talk to about these challenges. And we did actually at that time focus on the challenge from uh, China and Russia. And in, and in part, that was because um, the surge and you know, all of that was working thanks to the sacrifices of American men and women in the greater Middle East. And we had the ability to step back and say, yeah. what will the challenge the future? future? So we could pick up our head a little bit. This is before the recession. Um, but even before Russia invaded Georgia, um, we could see that there were going to be challenges there and with China as well. So we were actually doing doing a legwork. That's I true. Think it's, in 2008, you do have South Ossetia and Abkhazia being invaded in, in, in Georgia being invaded yep. by Russia, which was kind of this, you know, yep. everybody focused on the Middle East wars was like, hey, the, we got to chew gum and walk yep. at the same time. So, the theme now. Go ahead. Yep. So to finish that, so we did actually, we focused on them uh, as threats, but, but as a general principle, the, the national security strategies since the end of the Cold War um, were less focused than they should and could have been on kind of great power competition. That changed with Trump. And and he and the administration deserve credit for a national security strategy that came out just as um, uh, many of the most successful ones had from the Cold War and said, look, there are enormous challenges to our interests and objectives in the world posed by China in particular, but also Russia and the Iran, and then they set out on a policy. Okay, right, so we're, we're gonna have some fun here. Okay, we're gonna. Yep. I'm gonna throw the Trump national strategy. We're okay, gonna, we're gonna grade it, but along kind of the key elements, you say makes for a good, great, or not so great national strategy. Let's do it. Trump administration. They developed a comprehensive strategy. Yes or no? Pretty yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Made it classified? No, it was a public document. There was no classified component that you're aware of? No, no. Nope. Mistake? Uh, they used the public unclassified overarching strategy to then develop the component pieces. Classified component pieces. Like national defense strategy. Was national defense strategy was classified. And then my understanding is they, they had um, in, internally developed um, strategies for a particular region. Yeah, on that region was involved in the right. Okay, yep. So kind of mixed grade on, on that front. Yep. The White House should leave. Master Leto. Right? He did. Yep. Okay. Um, geopolitics matters then, now, and always. They got that, correct? Right? They did. Although I can come back to that. Go ahead. Give, give, give me. A quick I think off. the one of the um, kind of themes throughout this article is that America does best when we combine the hard power, right? And by hard power, we mean military and economic yeah. power. Yeah. With um, the the kind of values base or um, ideological component. And Take no another minute on this one. Okay, so nobody was stronger on this than Ronald Reagan, who didn't just have a defense buildup, didn't just oppose Soviet activities um, throughout the world, but also made it a huge priority of his to stand up and, first of all, to speak frankly and truthfully about the nature of the threat. And some of the lines that we remember most from him, right, the Soviet Union is an evil empire. That was 100% true and it needed to be said. The other line that we often remember is Mr. Gorbachev come and tear down this wall. Yeah. And what he was saying is, you are imprisoning effectively um, the people in the Eastern Bloc who ought by right to be free. And he had the moral clarity and courage to stand up and say that. And that was a trait that uh, President Eisenhower was also 
very astute about. And frankly, we had struggled since the George H.W. Bush administration to get the balance of, if you will, the values of the ideology piece um, with the hard power piece. Interesting, because George W. was was clear on it on the on the values piece, but perhaps because of the wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, you're saying you got to go back to H.W. To, to balance it all? I think there's something to that. I mean, we, in the George W. Bush administration, this was something we gave a lot of a lot of thought to. And I think all of us who were in the administration recognized that there were times where we could have gotten the balance uh, more optimal. And I do think you have to go back to the H.W. Bush administration and Reagan and Eisenhower defined administration that really had, did it well, and we need to get back to that. All right, we got to go quick because okay. we have eight, eight more All things right. in which okay. to grade. I mean, there's so many elements here. Rigorously analyzed competitors. They, they were pretty rigorous in analyzing. I think they did. I think there's a lot. Morning's happening. Morning's happening. We need to do a lot more work on what the Chinese are up to and what it means for us. This is an interesting one. Analyze the United States, too. What do you mean by that? How, why do we have to analyze the United States when we do a national strategy? Dealing with the China yeah. or all so the challenges. Any successful national security strategy like Reagan's starts with understanding what your competitor, in, in this case, China, previously, Soviet Union, was up to and why and what it means for us, what their strengths and weaknesses are. And then you think through, okay, what are our strengths and weaknesses? Got it. And so what are the areas that we need to press um, in terms of exploiting their vulnerabilities? And that is something that was, again, essential to the best of the work that went on during the Cold War, including the Huntington study that we talked about during the Carter administration. And again, it's something that we need to get and, back to. And Reagan, of course, felt that it was our ability to innovate in entrepreneurial spirit was something that was our strength that we would uh, obviously use to exploit Correct. Soviet vulnerabilities. Yep. All right, focus on the decision-making environment, how they do on that front. I, I think reasonably well. What this means is basically when you design your strategy, what you want to do is affect the way that your opponent sees the world and the decisions they can make. And as Henry Kissinger has pointed out, just like in a business competitive strategy, you can take certain steps proactively to try to shape the environment in which your competitor makes his decisions. Get in their head is the yeah, kind of short yeah, version yeah. of that. We can do this or we can't do this we, because of you know, what the U.S. is doing. Correct. And we have something that Reagan was very uh, keen on, and, and again, Eisenhower as well, is that America has enormous strengths, both kind of actual and late. maintain continuity and consider alternatives that was a hard one for trump folks yeah because they wanted to make a break shape. yeah play the long game i think this is right i uh, talking with um with the folks who worked with general mcmaster to create the national security strategy they knew that what they were doing was different from what it came before that they wanted to present the threat from china in particular um as an enormous geopolitical challenge to the u.s and to get the american people to understand that and then to get talk and how we dealt with it and I think they succeeded. Three more. Okay. I'm going to focus on two. Okay. Uh, hard power underpins soft power and enablement. Yeah, this and is, I love this one. This is like, okay, go ahead. This is what we talked about before. This is making sure that when we, it's not just a defense buildup and tackling the geopolitical threat from these countries, it's also standing up for our own values, which are deeply attractive to the rest of the world and certainly more attractive than effectively an ethno nationalist totalitarian state seeking to impose a tribute system which is what the Chinese Communist Party wants to do. So we're strong in standing for this set of values. Take it seriously. Basic human freedom. And then uh, there are two, I'll just say on this last one, remain optimistic. Why is that uh, a way to grade a strategy? Where, where does the optimism come from? Yeah, and this, so yeah, this was a something of a reminder to the current administration too, which is again, this, if you look at the world, you wouldn't want to be 
anywhere in the future other than here. That's because of our the nature of our constitutional system, free press, free elections, divided government, all of the things that- However messy it is, you are free here and you can succeed here. And we self-correct. And, we self-correct. and this is, everyone understands that there are, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, you have to appreciate that, okay, the American people selected President Bush to pursue a certain policy and then President Obama to do something else. And each time there's a course correction and we don't get it right, but we tend to head generally in the right direction because the source of our support and authority is the American people. And any kind of authoritarian or totalitarian system is the exact opposite and therefore is fundamentally vulnerable if if we choose to take advantage of it and, and pressure. We the people is our comparative advantage in all of this. And actually this, let me make a, a, a pitch for Sam Huntington again. He wrote a famous article at, long after the Carter administration, he wrote a famous article on these periodic waves in which Americans feel like we're in times of decline. Right. And he walks through them and they're not, it's not wrong to say that sometimes we feel like we're falling behind or we're not doing as well as we should. But he ended on this note of a quiet optimism or self-confidence, which is that for all the reasons we've discussed and all of these presidents, I think we've appreciated, um, we have the ability to adapt and to self-correct. And that's because of the nature of our system and we shouldn't forget that. So that's why I said it's important to remember that I would rather be here than anywhere else in the world in the future. Only a few minutes left. We have to get to our lightning round, but I first need you to tell us what we can expect from the Biden administration. They released their interim national security strategic guidance, which is kind of the quasi, here's what you might see in our national security strategy. They have Jake Sullivan as our national security advisor, uh, previously served in the State Department and the White House. Very well, very experienced, thoughtful person. What are you expecting? The short answer is to be determined. They haven't um, released their final national security strategy yet. And for reasons we talked about, they may not. If they choose to do a classified version, we may only see a summary or just bits and pieces and hints of it uh, through speeches. I, I, which you would like. I, which is what I propose in this yeah, article. Yeah. The article, in some ways, was was addressed to our friends in the Biden administration to, to um, kind of remind them of some of the principles and practices that made for successful national security strategies in the past. Right. Um, so we'll see, but I think they do have experienced policymakers, um, many of whom are are aware of, of uh, the basics of this history. Lightning round. Okay. This is not going to be hard, okay. given that you essentially grew up in the Reagan Library archives. You spent most of your 20s there. Um, your favorite book on Reagan, other than, of course, Ronald Reagan <laughs> and his quest to abolish nuclear weapons. Uh, favorite book? Uh, the, it's actually, it's, it's coming out shortly. Our, uh, the Will Inboden, um, was my predecessor in the White House, in the Bush White House, and is writing a, uh, well, he'll be on this show. This will happen. When you have him, but I've read it. I've read, I've read good chunks of it and it looks great. So a a sneak preview of that. So, so buy my book, buy Will's and, and you'll be off to good stuff. Okay. Will Inboden, uh, coming soon to a Reaganism show near you. Uh, favorite Reagan speech. You only get one. In 1982, um, President Reagan uh, was invited by uh, the United Kingdom to speak uh, to the British Parliament, and he gave a speech that is a classic and that perfectly encapsulates the issues we talked about, where he says, look, the Soviet Union is vulnerable. Let's push on them through an arms race and through geopolitical competition. But he also made clear that what he wanted was for, ultimately, 
the people in the Soviet Union and the people behind the Iron Curtain generally to share even something of the freedoms that we had and, and maybe took for granted outside of that area. And he was right to do it. And he was honest about it. And it made a difference. The Westminster speech. Westminster the freedom agenda that followed. Right. Or uh, was expressed there. All right. Last one. Your favorite Ronald Reagan quote. Um, there's a great, he had a, a sign on his desk. Um, and I have the same sign in uh, in our house, actually, which my children appreciate. And it says, it can be done. Simple. Simple. But also reassuring that we can achieve great things. We set our minds to it. Pauletto, thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to seeing this amazing article turn into another amazing Pauletto book. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.